all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. And I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to be talking about heart disease and in particular how lifestyle affects heart disease and some changes that you can put in place to help lower your risk of things like heart attacks and strokes. If you have a question or a comment for us, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's 877-672-7464. Or you can always email us at mpbonline.org. So I wanted to really dig in a little bit. Uh, I mentioned lifestyle medicine on this show a lot, and some people may not know exactly what that is. And so I want to talk a little bit about what lifestyle medicine is as a specialty and then how we can use that to um, address certain medical issues. And in particular, we're going to focus in on cardiovascular disease today or heart disease. Um, lifestyle medicine, uh, obviously, is, is what I practice and on, a, on a daily basis, and it involves looking at lifestyle factors, things like nutrition and physical activity and sleep health and stress and substance, risky substance use, and social uh, connectedness and other social determinants of health, and how those things can be used to prevent, treat, or reverse chronic disease. And I see patients uh, for this in Lifestyle Medicine Clinic at UMC, um, myself and another nurse practitioner uh, staff that clinic. And the, the top things that we see, uh, we work with a lot of patients on diabetes and prediabetes. Uh, we work with a lot of folks with high blood pressure or who have had a heart attack or had a stroke or, or are at risk for those things. We also work with folks that have uh, fatty liver and folks that need to get a joint replacement, like a knee replacement or a hip replacement, and need to work on their their risk factors uh, before they are operated on. Uh, that's something that not a lot of people are aware of, but there are some risk factors that can um, increase your risk for not having a great surgical outcome from a joint replacement standpoint. And weight is one of those, but smoking, uh, not great control of your blood sugar, um, not great control of your blood pressure, um, anemia, 
poor dental health, those kinds of things all play into how well you do following a joint replacement. So that's what I do when I say I'm seeing patients. Those are the types of patients that I'm seeing and the types of things that we are working on. But by and large, uh, heart disease or cardiovascular disease underlies a lot of what we are doing. And you know, if we look at 2020 statistics, which are the, are the most current ones that we have, uh, looking at causes of death, heart disease still ranks as the top cause of death. Even with COVID-19, uh, for 2020, heart disease is still number one. And it is largely, a lot of it, preventable. Um, if we look at certain factors. And there's actually a study that um, came out, it was actually a trial, that looked at um, the percent of heart attacks right, or myocardial infarctions, that uh, medical term for heart attacks, and that 90% of those could be attributed to nine risk factors, right? So that there were kind of these nine things that were underlying the primary cause or primary reason that these heart attacks occurred. Uh, and the first one is abnormal lipids, right? So cholesterol levels, and we'll talk about those and what, they, what our targets should be and some strategies for lowering those. Smoking. We've talked about smoking on the show uh, many times, and we'll kind of give a little overview and point you to some uh, resources for that as well. Um, high blood pressure and getting that under control. Diabetes. Abdominal obesity. So we're talking waist circumference here and where we carry our weight. Um, psychosocial factors. So stress, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, as well as some of the other social determinants of health. Lower consumption of fruits and veggies, and we're going to spend some time uh, on, on this particular area today as well, because I find it very, very interesting that that in and of itself is a risk factor, just the fruits and veggies component. Um, higher consumption of alcohol and a lack of regular physical activity. And so when they look at this list or when I look at this list, you know, I see a lot of things that can kind of be grouped together in terms of of cause, right? We see you know, abnormal lipids on here, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, abdominal obesity, uh, lack of physical um, activity, and we can kind of lump those all into being being able to be treated with nutrition and physical activity and those types of things. So what I find so interesting is the fact that fruits and veggies were kind of singled out in its own risk factor. So not just you know, poor nutrition or maybe overconsumption of um, processed foods or, um, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages or those kinds of things, but just looking at fruits and vegetables and the lack of those in the diet as a significant contributor to not only the development of cardiovascular disease, but the uh, risk of having a heart attack. So that's pretty significant. And we'll talk about some ways uh, to, or some strategies to incorporate more fruits and veggies into your diet. But I do want to start with number one, which was the abnormal lipids. And that is your cholesterol, right? And when we think about cholesterol, or if you've gotten your cholesterol checked with your healthcare provider, you'll usually see a couple of uh, numbers that come back. You'll see a total cholesterol, you'll see an LDL, an HDL, and a triglyceride level. That's kind of what's standard on the report that you get. 
Um, and total cholesterol, you know, I'm, I'm less focused on that. I like to know what the breakdown is, what the components are. But in general, for um, adults, male and female, we want that number to be less than 200. Okay? But if we look at the components, the LDL and the HDL, as well as the triglycerides, those are, are some of the areas that we really want to kind of focus in on. When we're talking about LDL versus HDL, you may hear it termed good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, right? Um, a way that I like to think about it and remember it is um, happy cholesterol and lousy cholesterol, so the L and the H, right? So HDL is the happy cholesterol. That's the one that we actually want the number to be higher. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about ways to lower your cholesterol, but in reality, we're actually talking about shifting the, the components a little bit. So lowering the lousy or the LDL and raising the happy or the HDL. And so um, with HDL, we want that to as close to 60 um, as we can get it. You know, if you look at guidelines, you're going to see for men, we want it over 40. For women, we want it over 50. Um, so just to make it kind of easier to remember, 50 to 60 is kind of a, a good place to, to shoot for, um, regardless of your um, uh, sex. Now, the LDL or the lousy, we want to be lower, right? Again, that L, L, lousy, lower, H, happy, higher. So with LDL, um, guidelines have changed and kind of fluctuated from year to year, and that can make it a little bit difficult for people to, to know what the heck is going on. And the, the, the take home is that it's, it's individualized and that you uh, should be working one-on-one -on -one with your individual healthcare provider to look at all of your risk factors for heart disease and determine what your LDL goals should be. Um, a general cutoff point has been 100 or less than 100, um, but depending on your other risk factors, uh, treating to a, a goal of about 70 is even more beneficial. Because what we're trying to get to happen with LDL cholesterol is to stop plaque formation from happening. So not like the plaque on your teeth, but plaque in your arteries that are um, go, you know, feeding your, your heart. And so the, the lower or closer to 70 that we can get that LDL, the more likely we are to be able to stop uh, kind of the, uh, the progression or laying down of, of new plaque and increasing the risk of having that heart attack or stroke. Um, and the final piece is the triglycerides, right? And triglycerides should be less than 150. Now, I see a lot of folks um, that come in that have elevated triglycerides, um, and the rest of their cholesterol panel may look okay, but their triglycerides are elevated. And I usually then go, hmm, what's their blood sugar? Because those things can be kind of kind of linked together through insulin resistance. And so a lot of the folks that I'm working with that have diabetes will also have an elevated triglyceride level. And so we want to work on uh, getting that down as well. The triglyceride level is also one of the reasons why we want you to be fasting. Uh, when we check your cholesterol level, you may have been you know, told don't eat anything after midnight 
um, or, you know, within eight to 12 hours of when you're coming to get your cholesterol checked. And that triglyceride level is the one that's most sensitive to that. Um, if it comes back super high, I usually am going to call folks and say, did you have something this morning? You know, did you have creamer in your coffee or sugar in your coffee, something like that? Um, and that's the one that's affected uh, most often by, um, by not fasting there. You can have water, though. Please have some water. Um, a lot of times people won't drink or eat anything, and then they're a little dehydrated. It makes their blood dry out a little bit harder. So you can have water. Um, and some folks will like, some places will let you have black coffee as well. But just talk with your healthcare provider about what it actually means to be fasting before your blood tests. So, in general, that total cholesterol less than 200, that HDL or happy cholesterol between 50 and 60 the LDL uh, between 70 and 100, and triglycerides less than 150. And so it's important to know your numbers, right? So a lot of times uh, people will say, well, you know, I'm on cholesterol medicine, but they don't know what their actual numbers are. So talking uh, with your healthcare provider, asking for a copy of your records or writing them down is a great place to start because then you know you know, you know, you know where you are in terms of any changes that need to be made or whether you're right on track in terms of your cholesterol levels. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPP Sync Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're talking about lifestyle medicine and in particular how we use lifestyle medicine to lower uh, your risk of developing heart disease. If you have a question or a comment for us, you can give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877 877- 672-7464, or you can email us, fit at mpbonline.org, and you can email anytime. You don't have to wait till we're on the air. Um, they will get that message over over to me, and I will be happy to point you in the right direction and get you the information that you're asking for. Before the break, we uh, spent a fair amount of time talking about cholesterol, um, because when we look at the science out there, there are about nine risk factors that contribute to about 90% of heart attacks. And so if we can address those nine risk factors, we can significantly decrease the burden uh, of heart attacks, which is something that we want to be dedicated uh, to doing. And abnormal cholesterol is one of those risk factors. We went through uh, through the, the general recommendations for what those levels should be, and we actually did have 
um, a question that came in that said, let me pull it up. It said, if HDL is good, then uh, why shouldn't that number be higher than the LDL? And that's an excellent question. So we talked about LDL being the lousy and we want it to be lower, HDL being the happy and we want it to be higher. And so when we look at um, and what those numbers should be, it's it's kind of a um, one of those things that's not fully understood. And I know that's a, a terrible thing when we say that, but it is something that we're learning more and more about. But too high of an HDL level does not protect you more. So it's kind of like when we talk about medicines, right? Like two Tylenol are good, but four Tylenol does not make it more good. Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't help you more. And so HDL, um, you know, we want it to be in that you know, 40 to 60 uh, range, of course, again, depending on uh, sex, but higher than 60 does not necessarily confer um, health benefits. And actually, when we look at some of the studies out there, people that have super high HDLs um, were actually uh, at an increased risk for, for having that heart attack. Um, or having heart disease. So that, that 40 to 60 spot is kind of where we, we want to hang out there. Um, and that's a, an achievable thing for a lot of folks. Um, now, in some folks, I do see high HDLs. A lot of time that is um, an inherited condition, and inheritedly high HDLs sometimes do protect against heart disease. So I know that can be a little bit confusing. So that's one of the things that I would recommend don't just get your lab results from your healthcare provider. Have a conversation with them about what your individual levels mean in relationship to you, your family history, your risk of disease, and what your individualized targets should be. I, I can't emphasize enough that we've, we've got to be talking to each other. Um, and, and not seeing healthcare as just a transaction where you come in we tell you things, we, you know, give you prescriptions either for a lifestyle or for medicines, and you're a passive, you know, participant in this. We've really got to be talking about um, what your numbers mean, what that risk is for you in the next, you know, five, ten years, as well as a lifetime, and what specifically you can do to lower that risk, whether that be medications, whether that be lifestyle, or whether that be the combination of the two. And it, it should always be um, lifestyle. And a lot of people say, well, are you anti-medicine? Absolutely not. Um, lifestyle and medicine together is a powerful tool and certainly something that, uh, that I recommend and that we utilize um, in clinic as well. Now, if there are medicines that we can get off of, that is great. And that is one of my favorite things to do is medication de-prescribing and being able to take people off of medications after they've made, um, you know, significant and sustainable uh, lifestyle changes. So I hope that answered your question a little bit and didn't muddy the waters even more. Um, but again, have that individual conversation with your healthcare provider. Um, some other ways that we can affect our cholesterol levels uh, are smoking, right? So smoking was an independent risk factor when we looked at these uh, risks of having a heart attack, but it's it's kind of multifactorial, right? Yes, smoking 
can increase your risk of having a heart attack, but smoking also alters your cholesterol levels, which increases your risk of having a heart attack. So I often tell patients when they come to see me, they think, you know, the first thing I'm going to recommend is a change to their, their diet or their exercise levels. But if they are a smoker, um, I always tell them the best thing or the most important thing you can do for your health is to stop smoking. Um, and I can't, you know, I can't push that enough that that is the most important thing that you can do um, in terms of your overall health is if you are currently a smoker, um, working on smoking cessation. And that can be really, really hard, uh, but there are tools out there that we can uh, utilize, that we can help you with. We did a show a um, couple months back, probably about, about two months back, uh, with the folks from um, the ACT Center at UMC and the resources that they have available uh, to help with smoking cessation. And really the most successful strategies for smoking cessation uh, are often a combination of counseling as well as um, nicotine replacement or some of the other medications um, out there. Um, a lot of times people are afraid of the nicotine replacement, but it's just a tool. It's not something that you're going to utilize forever. Um, but, you know, think of it in terms of, you know, still getting the nicotine, but dropping the uh, carcinogens and the toxins that are coming from the smoke that are doing damage to your lungs, and then uh, decreasing the amount of nicotine that you're using until you're eventually um, done. And there are lots of different devices for nicotine replacement. There are lots of different modalities. Um, people are most commonly um, familiar with the patch, which is a, a viable option. Um, but what I always tell folks is it doesn't matter what the literature says is the best one. It's the one that you're most comfortable using, the one you will use. Um, I had a patient who uh, had seen someone and they had prescribed patches. I saw them and, you know, they were not utilizing the patches. And I asked, you know, about what was keeping them from doing that. And they said, well, I'm just not comfortable sticking that on my body. And so we just switched to um, a nicotine replacement gum. Um, and ultimately that person was able to, to stop smoking. So if you're not successful with one method, don't give up on that. You know, there are lots of other types. So there's the patch, there's the nicotine replacement gum. There are lozenges, which can be good for folks who have uh, dental issues. A lot of folks with like TMJ and that kind of thing, they don't do the gum well um, because it hurts their jaw. But there are lozenges. There are um, the little... Um, inhaler that you can do with those different kinds of things. Um, so there are a plethora of options out there, some over-the-counter, some that uh, have to be uh, prescribed, including things like um, uh, bupropion, uh, which is an oral medication to help with that as well. So if you're interested in uh, smoking cessation and being able to, to ditch those cigarettes, you can email me, fit at mpbonline.org, and I'll put you in contact with the folks at the ACT Center. You can also call the National Quit Line, which is 1-800-QUIT-NOW, and they um, can do some telephone counseling with you as well as um, get you in contact with some folks in your area that can help you with smoking cessation. But it really is so very, very important. Um, stopping uh, the use of uh, cigarettes.
cigarettes, not only does it improve your respiratory health and keep your lungs nice and healthy, um, but it does affect those LDL and HDL numbers. It drives HDL down and it can raise um, LDL. So stopping smoking um, can improve those cholesterol levels, which then in turn lower your risk for uh, heart disease and for heart attacks. Um, Smoking can also have a role in one of the other risk factors that we have on our list, which is uh, hypertension and high blood pressure. And so nicotine uh, can raise um, blood pressure. And so that's why we don't want to stay on nicotine replacement forever. Uh, But it is a tool that we use to to lower uh, the cravings and then eventually come off of that. And lowering your blood pressure is something that we can do in lots of different ways. We can do it, again, with elimination of cigarettes, but also through changes in our nutrition and changes in our physical activity and changes in our sleep. Sleep, I feel like, is one of the most underutilized strategies um, for treating high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. So, First, let's kind of start with knowing what your blood pressure is. Um, Lots of times when people come to see me, I'm doing kind of their medical history, and I'll say, you know, tell me about any medical problems that you may have. And they'll often not mention things like high blood pressure, uh, and I'll ask them about that, and they'll say, well, my blood pressure is fine. But if I pull their trend and look, They've been running in the 140s on the top number and the 90s on the bottom number. And while that's not terrible, right, I mean, we certainly see higher numbers. It is too high for, um, for general health, and we want to get that top number 120 or a little lower and that bottom number 80s um, or you know, 80 or lower on that. And The way I like to think about blood pressure is that top number or the systolic number is the pressure inside your blood vessels when your heart contracts, right? When it squishes blood out, right? That's why that number is higher because the pressure inside your blood vessels should be higher when the heart is actually pushing. The bottom number, the diastolic number, is the pressure inside those vessels when that the heart is relaxed, right? And so that's why that number is equally as important. A lot of um, times we've we've kind of focused on what that top number is and and talk about the top number, but the bottom number is is equally as important. And the way I like to think about it and the way I like to explain it is, if your heart is not getting kind of adequate rest, you know, or decrease in pressure during that that little you know, pause between beats, and then the pressure is staying super high in those vessels, that's going to lead to some some damage and some change. So I usually ask someone, um, can you do a push-up? And, uh, or can you do a plank? Or can you do a wall sit? And if they say yes, I'll say, okay, could you hold that forever? Right? Could you hold a plank forever? And most folks are going to be like, no, can't do that. Right? And that's because we need our muscles need a break. They need to rest right there. And so a diastolic level that is super high is kind of like asking your heart to, to hold that, that plank for a while. And so the heart muscle is not a muscle that we want to get bigger, right? A bigger, thicker heart muscle does not mean that it works better. It means that um, 
it, you know, it gets thicker, and so you've actually got less room for blood and less less pumping power, and so we start to see some things like heart failure. And so treating and and getting that diastolic level below 80 is really important for allowing our heart to kind of have that little period of of um, of rest and keeping the heart muscle nice and healthy there. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for joining us today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we're talking about lifestyle strategies to uh, prevent, treat, and reverse heart disease today. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. And my email is fit at mpbonline.org. We've spent some time talking about cholesterol and smoking, and we talked about high blood pressure before the break, and in particular what those numbers mean and why we need to be focused on systolic as well as diastolic um, goals. And we talked about um, that nutrition plays a role in that. But I want to put a pin in that for a second and circle back around to um, the sleep piece because I did uh, mention that and how sleep is one of the most kind of underutilized strategies for um, improving heart health. Um, And in particular, when we look at heart attacks, people who have low sleep duration, and I'll talk about what the optimal sleep duration is in just a minute, um, have a 20% higher risk of having a heart attack. And those who have a long sleep duration, so again, you can have too much of a good thing, um, have a 34% higher risk of having a heart attack. So how much sleep should we be getting um, between seven, about seven to eight hours? So when we look at what we're calling um, short sleep duration, that's less than six hours, and long or prolonged sleep duration is um, greater than nine hours. So seven to nine is kind of that sweet spot. Um, I like to shoot for eight. So right in right in the middle there uh, in terms of overall health. So improving blood pressure, also improving blood sugar, um, lowering that risk of heart disease. Sleep also plays into some of the other things that we may want to improve, right? Like our nutrition. How does sleep impact that? Well, hormones are regulated. A lot of hormones are secreted 
um, according to our circadian rhythm and our internal clock. And if we don't sleep well, either too little, too much, or a broken rhythm, um, then those hormone uh, patterns are also dysregulated, and that can lead to elevations in cortisol level, which can drive blood sugar up. They can also, um, you know, contribute to more um, uh, weight around the midsection, that type of thing. And then there are two other hormones. One is called ghrelin and one is called leptin, and they have to do with our appetite and, and satiety factors. And so leptin is usually the hormone that makes us feel more full and satisfied. Ghrelin is the one that makes us, I like to say, hangry because um, it makes us crave different things. And so an abnormal sleep pattern um, actually alters the levels of those and will um, increase ghrelin and decrease leptin. And so it'll make us make us hungrier and usually for things that are, are not, not fruits and veggies, right? So it can uh, kind of derail our, our nutrition plans. All right, we do have a caller on the line, Virgie from Brookhaven. Good morning. How can I help you today? Yes, uh, I would like to know what are the numbers uh, that's too low on your blood pressure. Mm, let that's everyone, a great. Let everyone know about that. Yeah, absolutely. And so blood pressure can get too low. Um, and it can be different for, for everyone. Um, usually, I get a little bit concerned when people are less uh, adults, right, adults, less than 100 on the top and less than 60 on the bottom. Um, people can kind of start to get fatigued or dizzy, those types of things. So, But a lot of people run that as their normal. So it's more important about what somebody's baseline is. Um, and if there's a deviation from that, as well as how you're feeling, right? If blood pressure goes too low, then when we move positions or change positions, especially if we do that quickly, then we don't have enough kind of pressure to get that blood delivered to our brain, and we may get dizzy, we may pass out, those kinds of things, which we call orthostatic hypotension. Um, so it's important to you know, keep track of what those you know, what you're, how you're feeling, especially if a new medication has been added. Um, checking your blood pressure at home is another good strategy to have. You can get um, a cuff, a blood pressure cuff from uh, most pharmacies. I do usually recommend an arm cuff and not a wrist cuff. Wrist cuffs are not incredibly accurate there. Sometimes they'll read a little bit higher um, than what is accurate. Uh, and make sure you're taking that blood pressure correctly, meaning you're sitting um, with your feet flat on the floor, your back supported by the back of a chair, your arm kind of at heart level. So usually, you know, having a side table or kitchen table, something like that, that you can rest your arm on, um, having the um, cuff placed directly on your skin, so not over the top of clothing. Uh, and and don't talk while you're having your blood, while you're checking your blood pressure and see what you're looking at there and starting to, to write that down and log it. And I usually recommend folks check it at about the same time every day. I don't want to compare a morning blood pressure to an afternoon blood pressure, if that makes sense. Um, so if mornings are better for you, then take it in the morning every day. If afternoons are better, which is actually what I prefer, then, then take it there um, as well and keep that log and let your healthcare provider um, know. All right. Yes. Yeah. Very good information. Thank you very much. 
You're so welcome. Thank you for giving us a call today. And if you're listening and have a call, have a question or a comment, our number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. All right. So we were talking about uh, sleep, uh, and I think we we can probably pretty much wrap up um, sleep. But in particular, um, thinking about you know the first step is, is thinking about how much you're actually getting, and you know every morning just think about what your duration of sleep was, and if it's not in that area between seven to nine hours, um, kind of start to think about what the barriers are um, that are keeping you from getting that seven to nine hours of, of good quality sleep. And everybody's is going to be different. So there's no kind of one size fits all kind of sleep prescription that I give folks. Um, it, it very much depends on what the individual barriers are. And that's one of the things that makes lifestyle medicine different um, than some of the other approaches uh, in healthcare is that it is extremely individualized. I can have two patients with the exact same medical diagnosis and the exact same issues, maybe sleep, and their action plan or their their lifestyle prescription that we complete for them um, may be absolutely completely different um, between each other because it's very, very individualized. All right. Um, in terms of blood pressure, um, one of the things that we want to look at in terms of nutrition is that sodium content in your food or the salt content. And a lot of folks think it's the salt shaker. And we, we can absolutely overdo it that way, but the vast majority, like 75 to 80% of the sodium content in the American diet is from a packaged product. So if your healthcare provider has told you that you need to watch your salt intake, a really good look at the packaged items that you are consuming or that you are using is an excellent place to start. Because even if you completely eliminated the salt shaker and you're using lots of packaged products, we're still going to be over kind of the sodium goal that, that we want uh, for folks. So really looking at the packaged products, and that's things like seasoning packets, right, like taco seasoning or spaghetti seasoning, but also other things like soups and broths, but then things like um, crackers and uh, chips and popcorn and those kinds of things, um, uh, meal kits that that you know have the the seasoning packets and the salsas and all those things already in them doesn't mean we can't use them just means we may not need to use the whole daggum thing when we're making stuff um but really looking at the packaged items that we start with and can we start with um you know not that packaged item and just some additional seasonings well is a, a good first place to start um, a lot of baked goods have a lot of sodium in them as well from the leavening agents that are used, like bread. Um, so I'm not anti-bread. I love bread. Um, but if we're trying to keep our uh, sodium under a certain goal, having bread multiple times a day, like having toast and then having a sandwich and then having bread with our evening meal, it's probably going to be too much uh, sodium when we add all those things up during the day. Um, so I usually say kind of, you know, one baked item a day, baked um, bread item a day, whether that be waffles or, or um, bread or, or muffins or those kinds of things. Um, so just taking a look at that 
So if you want a sandwich for lunch, maybe we have oatmeal for breakfast. If you want toast for lunch, maybe we have um, a salad um, for lunch. So just different ways to balance those things out there. But with planning in mind, right, good nutrition and improved nutrition does not happen by accident. It takes um, intentionality and planning. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we've been talking about lifestyle medicine and how it is used to prevent, treat, and reverse heart disease, and we've been going through some of the modifiable risk factors for heart attacks today, including things like elevated cholesterol, smoking, blood pressure, um, and we've talked about some strategies for um, addressing all of those, but the, the risk factor that stood out to me when I looked at this list of nine risk factors that um, are linked to about 90% of heart attacks was the fact that not only did it, did it talk about diet-related conditions like hypertension and diabetes and obesity, but it singled out the fact that lower consumption of fruits and vegetables is a risk factor for heart disease. Um, So when we think about that in terms of the dietary pattern that we consume in America, the standard American diet, only about 12% of our calories come from plant foods. Um, And half of that is from highly processed plant foods like um, the uh, apples and an apple pie or uh, ketchup, uh, those kinds of things, you know, not actual plants, not actual fruits and veggies. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I do endorse a plant-based diet um, and that a plant-based diet does not mean vegan, um, doesn't even mean vegetarian. It just means plant-focused or plant-predominant, so where the focus is on the plants. And I want to talk for a minute about why that's so important, why, why those two things, fruits and veggies, made the list in terms of being kind of the things that we should be focused on. And there are a couple of reasons, right? One is the fact that they are 
low in calorie or lower in calorie than some of our other food choices. Fruits and veggies usually are are low in calories and high in fiber, right? And so when whenever I'm asked what's kind of the number one thing somebody can do for their diet, it's increasing fiber. And the way you do that is by increasing fruits and vegetables. Fiber only lives in plant foods, okay? So if we are wanting to increase fiber, which the majority of folks probably should be, uh, most Americans get somewhere around 11 to 14 grams of fiber per day, when we should be shooting for about 25 to 40, depending on our individual goals and, um, and things there. So the fiber is one reason. The low calorie is the other. Um, they're also low in sodium, right? Now, this is when they're you know, not messed with a lot, right? So they're not you know, cooked with bacon and those kinds of things. But fruits and vegetables just in and of themselves are low in sodium, and they're high in potassium, which is great for blood pressure and heart health as well. Now, if you have um, advanced heart disease or kidney disease and you, you may be um, on a potassium restriction, that's a whole different, different ballgame. Um, where we really got to work with a, a dietitian to make sure that we balance your need for fiber and uh, with your with your potassium needs as well. But by and large, um, most folks are going to benefit from uh, that potassium increase there with uh, with the fruits and vegetables. And they're cholesterol free, right? So just like fiber only lives in plants, cholesterol only lives in animals. Now, you'll see a lot of conflicting information out there about dietary cholesterol and how it doesn't really matter, but it does matter in folks who have cholesterol problems, right? If you don't have a cholesterol issue, your the dietary cholesterol probably doesn't um, cause that much um, alterations in your lipid profile, but if you already have high cholesterol, then adding more dietary cholesterol is not a strategy that we want to employ. So a way to increase fiber, which also lowers cholesterol, right? It helps kind of um, um, the soluble fiber helps to lower cholesterol. Um, and then not have cholesterol uh, in general from a dietary standpoint, then fruits or vegetables are your way to go. So when I kind of step back and think of all those things that I just said, right, if, if we want to improve our heart health, then we need lower calories, more fiber, less cholesterol, then fruits and vegetables are a no-brainer there in terms of needing to add them to our diet. Um, when I say diet, I don't mean like our restrictive diet. I mean, our eating pattern or the, the, just our nutrition, the way we, the way that we eat. And so a lot of times people um, do approach their nutrition in terms of a diet and things to remove from their plate. And instead, what if we tried not removing things, but adding things instead? And so instead of saying, I can't have these things, or I need to not have this, think of it in terms of I'm just going to add this fruit, or I'm just going to add this vegetable. And so that, that could be a good kind of challenge for you um, for, the, for 2022 is thinking about how many fruits and vegetables you get on a daily basis. And, and really the only way to do that is to actually write down what you're eating. Because most people, if I say, do you eat fruits and vegetables, they'll say yes. Some of them will even tell me daily. But when I look at a diet recall, 
There are very few fruits and vegetables on there, in particular fruits almost non-existent on there. Um, so really get your baseline as to what it is that you're eating and then make a goal on how to increase that. And so it may be one fruit a day, right? So for the next month, my goal is going to be to have one serving of fruit per day or at least one serving of fruit per day or to add one vegetable to lunch and one vegetable to dinner. And it does not have to be fresh. It can be frozen. Frozen is often more nutritious than um, than fresh because it is picked and flash frozen at the peak of freshness. So don't don't skip on those frozen veggies there. But we do want to get them without you know without sauces and seasonings on there. But feel free to season yourself. But again, we want to start with those things that are less processed and less packaged, so that we can control the amount of salt, sugar, and fat that are added to things. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.